There, Romans chapter 3, going to look at verses 27 to 31. It's page 913 if you're using a Bible there in front of you. When you're in here all morning, being in here in the building, you don't really know what's happening out in the world. Um, I didn't even know it was raining, I, and I found out it was raining because I went to the, I was wandering around the lobby over towards the back door, and there must be 50 umbrellas there, which, which is really sad because we just got a brand new umbrella stand this week for multiple umbrellas, and we put it at the wrong door. So it's a beautiful umbrella stand out here and a lot of umbrellas down there. All right, Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Here's what we read. Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Lord, we gather today because we feel the need of better knowing you. And Lord, in this room of a few hundred people and add those that are online, there's such a variety of circumstances and concerns and life issues going on that only you truly understand and know. We ask, Lord, that you would speak into them through this service, through the time of worship, through the song we sing at the end, even now through this message. Draw us to truth, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, uh, when my family was younger, I only had five children at that time, little kids at the time, and we were, uh, I had been raised good New England stock. Um, we had moved down to Long Island. That's where I actually grew up. My parents were from New England, and, and uh, formal background um, in terms of the way we did life, some, some formality to it, and and. and some pride, uh, which was illustrated one day when uh, my wife invited me to go to the Goodwill store. Now, Marianne grew up uh, a, a professor's daughter, university professor. He was uh, certainly, they were not in financial struggles, but no problem going to Goodwill stores and getting things there, and so that was a regular thing. But in my in my frame of reference, I didn't do Goodwill stores. And so I got talked into going. And uh, we were in the car and driving along, and I was remonstrating all the reasons I didn't feel we needed to go to a Goodwill store at this time in our life. And I said, you know, we're not poor. And we're taking, <laughs> we're taking clothing away from people that are poor. And, and all these, which really had nothing to do with my motivation uh, I wasn't concerned about the poor. I was concerned about my viewing myself as a goodwill shopper. And God had an experience waiting for me at the store because of my spirit. So we arrived, and, and everybody scattered and goes around. They're 
gathering stuff. Marion's getting stuff for the little ones. She's got stuff for herself. She didn't get me anything because I was on my own to figure this out. And, and I finally chose a belt. So I had my belt, and I took it to the cash register, and I was standing there and um, surprised, honestly, at how nice things were there. And was standing there, and a guy came in from the back door parking lot, came in, and he had a big black plastic bag full of stuff. He was apparently coming to make a donation. And I was mesmerized by this guy. I'm standing there, and I'm looking at him. He's, he, I remember he's very tall. He was um, hair very scraggly, beard very scraggly. His clothes were ill-fitting, not matching, and he was dirty. And, and he's bringing in donations. And I can remember at that moment looking at my wife with an expression, a smug expression that was basically saying, see, what are we doing here? And she then leaned over and spoke just a, a, a wise word of counsel to me. And she said, why don't you go check out his stuff? Maybe you'll find something. <laughs> and that was, that was what it took for me to actually step back and look at the, the arrogant, awfulness in, in my heart. And stupidity, actually. Pride is the sin, C.S. Lewis says it this way, pride's the sin we hate most in others and are least able to identify in ourselves. The Lord is continually, relentlessly probing at the tentacles of pride in our heart. Here in verses 27 to 31, Paul reminds us of how discordant pride is with the life of faith. He argues two giant reasons why pride and the life of faith are contrary to each other. First of all, because our acceptance as righteous is based on faith. Pride is also discordant with a life of faith because our living in righteousness is based on faith. And I'd like to look at those two things, beginning at verse uh, 27, because our acceptance as righteous ones is based on faith. We're accepted on another person's work. He says this in verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. The principle, he says, that we, that causes us to not be able to, to boast is that we are accepted on the basis not of what we have done, but on the basis of our faith in someone else's work. It's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God's, not of works, so that no one can boast. Now, when he says, this acceptance with God, this salvation, is not of works. He doesn't mean that works are not the requirement. Works are required. What he's saying is, it's not of you. Someone else has done the work for you that has made you acceptable. And this is actually what we were the crux of the vitally important verses that we looked at last time in verses 21 to 26. I'd like to just take a moment to rehearse that for those of you that were here, just to remind you, for those that you weren't, to bring you up to speed. 
Because here in verse 21 and 26, one of the most important passages in the entire New Testament, Paul talks about what makes a person acceptable to God. And he is talking there about the validating performance record that opens the door to relationship with God. You see, we have validating performance records in all realms of life. If you want to get a new job, you pull out your resume. It is a validating performance record of your job experience. If you want to get into a school, you pull out your SAT scores. If you want to uh, get into a, uh, if you want to get a loan or a mortgage, you get out your credit score. They are, they're a validating performance records that open doors. The validating performance record that opens the door to relationship with God and to having an assurance of heaven is total righteousness. And throughout the Scriptures, we are told that Jesus Christ has met the standard of a totally righteous life. His report card, if you will, is completely uh, A's. It's completely exemplary that he lives totally righteously in every thought, word, deed, ambition, desire. That Jesus Christ not only met those standards, that righteousness, but that righteousness, that report card, that validates, that validating performance record is offered to people. People who recognize their own unrighteousness and their own state of being under God's judgment and place their faith in Jesus Christ, in the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ who lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. The death he died was to provide forgiveness for us by bearing the, the, the punishment for our sins. The life that he lived was providing righteous standing for us. It was the basis of our acceptance. And what Paul has argued in verses 21 to 26 is Jesus has done this for you. He has made righteousness available, but it requires faith, sola fide, only faith, faith alone. And so Paul says here in verse 27, where in the world is the place of boasting? Where can you put your pride You've done nothing. That your, your acceptance is totally on the performance of Christ. It is His validating performance record that validates you to be able to have eternal life as you place your, your faith in the life that He has lived for you and the death He has died for you. The second thing He says is there's a second reason for not boasting, and it, and it, 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 it is a corollary to the first. We are not accepted on our own performance. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified or declared righteous by faith, apart from observing the law. He says there's nothing in us that commends us for the acceptance. Now, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is doing an interesting thing, talking about the place of no boasting. And he's saying, he's speaking to the Corinthian believers, some of whom were very proud, and who had embraced Jesus Christ, but they had actually placed their pride in the fact that they were now in the spiritual no, that, they, that they, they did have a lifestyle that now they saw as morally exemplary, as superior to those around them. And he's, and he's basically saying, you have a false concept of this whole thing of faith, 
that you are assuming that, that somehow you are more commendable because you have placed faith, but you don't realize who it is that primarily, God primarily distributes this gift of faith to. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and following. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yet, we have an indefatigable energy to boast in things about ourselves, to try and feel good about ourselves by our own performance or our own capacities. One of the more tragic things that happens in Christianity is actually the result of a beautiful thing in Christianity. What happens when the gospel comes in, comes into a region or a people group? When the gospel comes into a family, what happens when the gospel comes into an individual's life is there are changes that the gospel brings, beautiful changes, powerful changes, that the gospel brings things like discipline, self-control, healing of emotions and, and, and wholeness to life. It does that, and, and, and over time, a whole family can be changed. An individual can be holistically changed. A people group can be changed. A whole tribe can be changed as the gospel influences that, that, that group. Paul wrote about that in the book of Titus. In the book of Titus, he's talking to, to Titus about the people that are living on the island of Crete. And he's saying, I want you to go. We've started churches there, he says, and I want you to go and I want you to appoint elders, leaders in each church. And he gives descriptions. These are the characteristics I expect those elders to have that they need to have. And he says things like this. They're individuals that can control their temper. They're not greedy men. They're not self-controlled. Uh, they are self-controlled. They're, they're hardworking. They're hospitable. And then Paul makes this striking statement in the very next verse in chapter 1 of Titus. And he says, basically, don't expect to find these guys under every tree because as the Cretan poet himself says, and this was actually a proverb about the Cretans, he says this in 1 Timothy, in Titus chapter 1, their own poet says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, I want you to find men that are self-controlled. I want you to find men that, that, are not, that, that, that are able to be hospitable to others. I want you to find men that are disciplined and hardworking men. And he says, you'll find them, even on Crete, because the gospel has come and has changed men. You'll find them. You'll find them in the churches. You'll find them that are going against the natural flow of even their own culture's definition. Because the gospel comes in and can make things new. I remember hearing the story years ago about a, European, a, a woman from Europe, a liberal educator who had gone to one of the Pacific Islands, and she was sort of tracking where missionaries were. And it was her premise that missionaries from Europe had gone in, and all they were doing was really trying to recolonize the islanders. Basically, they were trying to, to make the colonies uh, enculturated with the, with the missionary zone, socioeconomic and, and cultural priorities and bias. And, and, 
and there really wasn't anything about spiritual. They were just trying to recolonize in a different way and, and steal the culture of the people in the process. So I don't think she used these exact words, but basically she went to a, an individual, and this guy was a, a tribesman uh, in, a, in a very um, primitive culture, but he, had, he and his, his people, many of them had come to Christ, and there was a church there. And so she went to them, and she asked this guy in some words, do you feel that these missionaries have stolen your cultural heritage? To which the guy replied, I, I don't know. I just know that if you had come before Jesus did, you would have been eaten by now. <laughs> well, even to people looking on, cultures are influenced by the gospel. The gospel brings change. But here's the thing. When the gospel brings change, then it helps people to, to live a more ordered life, to, to not be as, as, as perhaps as, as given to passionate desires and, and, and addictive behavior. When the gospel begins to do its work in people's lives and change them from the inside out, that, that culture in a generation, in another generation, you begin to, to, to see the fruit, in, and even in your own generation. But what happens is you then begin to find that some of your own spiritual, your own natural abilities and strengths are given more freedom to express themselves because there is a change by the gospel. But our tendency is we then can begin to put our trust in those abilities, in those strengths, in those ways that we can run our lives and we can, we can do life and those very strengths that God has freed us to embrace, which He has made become that which we put our pride and our contentment in. But our worth and glory, Paul is saying, is Christ. Our joy is enjoying and glorifying Him. It is pride that drives our passion to be somebody and to find our praise for ourselves in our God-given capabilities and abilities. Pride is an insidious enemy. I was reminded of this in my own life this past week. We, Marion and I went to the ABWE board retreat, and I was in the board meetings, um, and it was a board retreat I was really looking forward to. We have a new president in the last few months who I, I really have a lot of confidence in and like very much. And we were meeting, this retreat was targeted to be a strategy and, and vision casting time, and we were looking ahead, and, and the board members were there, and the senior leadership of the mission were there, and we were all sitting around round tables just going through this exercise, and I, I, it was energizing and, and really a lot of fun, and I think very productive. But I was sitting there, and it was the last morning. We had been doing this for two full days, and the last morning, uh, Paul, our president, was talking to us, and he was talking about a a conversation he had had at dinner the night before. We were meeting in a, one of the large supporting churches towards ABWE is in Kentucky. We were meeting at their facility for our meetings in a hotel in the area where we stayed. And there was a lady in the church, this was her home church, who had been an ABWE missionary for 50-something years, a lovely, gentle, godly woman whose name I was familiar with. I, I did not remember having met her before. And... He was talking about her. He said, I, I had dinner with her last night. And he told us a little of her story, uh, a, a private woman 
who had given her life, literally her life. She was now retired in her, in her 80s. She had given her life to living in this third world Islamic country um, where this private, gentle woman could never live alone, always had to live in a small apartment with roommates who changed all the time. She gave up her freedom to have her own private life, even her own dwelling, all that time. He, he did not mention this part. He mentioned other parts. I know that, that she had at one point in this sojourn of giving her life to the people of this country had a man that she had met and they had corresponded while she was on the field and he had proposed to her and she loved him. She wanted to marry him. But he did not feel called to the people that she felt called to give her life to and so she broke off the engagement to remain faithful to her calling. And Paul made a statement that struck me. He said, if there is such a thing as human greatness in our mission, it is that woman. Now, I believe that. I do believe that. I believe that, that what is greatness before God is dying to self. It is saying yes to Jesus. It is humbly being a servant and doing what God calls us to do. But his statement actually had a profound impact on me because as we had been going through the, the exercises together uh, and all this strategy and all the ideas and, and coming up with stuff at our table and then sharing them and processing together, um, I was at a table and there were six or seven of us at the table. And we have um, all the, uh, it's a very varied board. We have some pastors on our board. We have uh, uh, three women that are on our board, a couple of whom are in education. We have some business people that are on our board of 14 or 15 of us. And at my table, there were two guys sitting there, one directly across from me who I know pretty well, one that's newer sitting right next to me. The guy across from me is the recently retired CEO of the largest insurance company in Chicago, a mega billion dollar deal. And he, I once saw a picture of his house. He doesn't know I saw it. And the square footage of his house in Chicago, which he used to serve missionaries, constantly having them stay with him, was almost the square footage of our entire site here in Mount Laurel. Big place. And the guy that was sitting over here is a CEO of a billion-dollar corporation. He in his industry, was brought in as the fifth CEO in five years because the company was running through them because they couldn't get out of a hole. He came in and in the last 15 years revolutionized the industry, and in his industry, he is an internationally known individual. And I'm sitting at this table with these two guys, and I'm strategizing with them, and I'm measuring myself against them, quite frankly. I'm, I'm eating this up. They value what I have to say. And, and I felt like we are, we're processing and we're bantering back and forth. I would be really embarrassed if they heard this. But, but, but we're talking, and I, and I genuinely felt, uh, wow, this is cool. I mean, we're processing, making decisions, thinking how to set goals, how to set our objectives. We're doing this together, and I know who these guys are. And all this time I'm measuring, measuring, measuring myself. And then Paul gets up there. And blows me out of the water by saying, you know, if there's greatness in our organization, it's that woman. 
But if you had been able to pull back the veneer of my heart, and if God the Holy Spirit had verbally come in and say, Paul, let's just stop for a minute. Hey, Mark, what are you seeing as the hero and the most valuable individuals right now in this organization? Who are the great ones? I would have been forced to say, mm, probably that guy and that guy, and I'm hoping this guy. <laughs> and when Paul stood up there and said, I was ashamed. Now, I didn't have conversations with anybody about it, and I, I, nobody, but I knew that what was driving my heart was pride, measuring myself. Now, it may be that those two guys would be viewed as great in the eyes of God, but I can tell you it's not going to be because they're captains of industry, and it's not going to be for their capacities of leadership. It's going to be just like that woman that they are men that know and delight in dying to themselves and delight in glorying in Jesus who see themselves as broken and resting in Christ. And to some degree, at least, I know that's true. But that wasn't what I was valuing. I valued what I saw my pride is such an ugly thing. And what Paul is saying to us, Guys, we've got to constantly allow the Spirit of God to bring us back and saying, what grid are you on? How are you evaluating yourself? Your acceptance is not found in your strengths or your desired strengths. It's not found in your capacities or your capabilities. It's also not found in your weaknesses. Because if we're beating ourselves up, we're in the same capacity of pride. We're still measuring on the wrong grid. He said it's found in your acceptance in Christ, that you're free in Christ. You're the beloved of God. You're the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. He wanted you. And this is where your measurement comes from, not in your performance. Our acceptance is not based on ourselves, our performance, our capacities, but on Christ. Quick other thing, we're not accepted on our own pedigree. Verse 29 and 30 is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. He says there's amazing potential of pride in one's background. It is easy as believers who have been the recipient of a, few, a couple of generations of faith to assume that our being part of a, an environment where, where I do live some degree self-control, that I am able to somehow do life, that I am able to live out the full capacities because I have the resources to do that. I come from a culture with the, the money to do that. I come with a culture with the talent to do that. I come to, from a culture with the order to do that, the self-control to do that. And Paul would say to us as he, does in, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? But he says it's not only the basis of our acceptance, it's also that, that makes pride incongruent for the life of faith. It's because our living in righteousness is based on faith. Notice verse 31. He says this, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. 
Here, I, I believe Paul is looking ahead. Most commentators think he's looking ahead to the objections that he's going to address in chapter 6. He knows they're there. He knows people are out there thinking, okay, here's the deal, Paul. You keep talking about it's sola fide. You know, it's only faith. It's not works. It's not law. Keeping the law. It's all grace. Well, then what you're saying is there's no place for righteousness. You're minimizing, you're, you're nullifying what the law is trying to get people to do is to live righteously. And he says, no, I'm not. I'm not. Now, he's saying, hang with me here. It's the same argument he'll address in chapter 6 when they said, why don't you just go out and, live in, go out and sin so grace can abound. He's saying, let's, let's think about this together. Suppose I said, suppose I, I lowered the bar, Paul says. Suppose I said, God now is going to judge on a curve that he's going to lower the standard for the SAT. He's going to dumb down the, the LSAT for law school. He's going to drop the values for a cadet at West Point. No longer it is duty, honor, and country. There's no more honor involved. He says what that would do is diminish the principles of these institutions. He says, no, we uphold the timeless principles of God by saying righteousness must be total and complete. There's no side door to heaven for lesser qualified members. There's just one door. It's the front door. You come through the righteousness of Christ no other way. But Paul is saying that isn't only true of how you're accepted in Christ. It also is true of how you live in Christ. And he's looking ahead to the, the questions about well, how you're supposed to live. I mean, it just seems like you're, you're nullifying the standards. And Paul is saying this. Do we nullify living righteously? No, we uphold it by saying that righteousness must be gained and it is gained by faith in Christ. And also by saying that righteousness must be lived and it is lived by faith in Christ. What he's going to say to these guys is, is you and the, the Judaizers and, and your heroes, the Pharisees, you actually nullify the law. You dumb it down. You lower the standard. You have a lower view of law, not a high view of law. You're saying, we can do this. We can do it. We can keep this. And you, so you practice some of the external things. You practice fa fasting two days a week, which many of them did. You, you, do, you do these ceremonial washings every time to, you know, to get rid of any taint of stain of ungodliness, supposedly, or corruption. You do all this stuff, and, and inside, you're not dealing with your hearts he says, you've lowered the principles of the law. He says, what I'm saying is this. The principles of God's standard of righteousness are so lofty. They speak to heart and mind and motive. And he says, there is no human being other than Jesus Christ that can live them. And he says, anything else is dumbing down the law. It is acting like we're living righteous. No, you can't live righteous. The greatest heresy in the history of the church in terms of Christian living is this, the belief that someone other than Jesus Christ can live the Christian life. Nobody can. But Jesus Christ is willing to do it through you. That is why it is sola fide. That is why it is a faith-based dependence on Christ, trusting in Christ experience. And Paul says, I'm not dumbing down the law. I'm not lowering the bar. You're lowering the bar by thinking you can make it. You can, you can jump over it. Well, you don't understand. The bar is 24 feet high. You can't get over that on your own. He says, I'm upholding the standard by saying it's all dependence on Christ. It's all faith. It's all 
Jesus. If that's true, if what he's saying in verse 31, he's saying this, we live by faith. There's no place for pride in living out the Christ life any more than there is pride in receiving the Christ life, which gives three impacts. And with this, I want to wrap. There are three impacts this has in our lives. Because there is no place for pride in the life of faith, first of all, our human strengths are our greatest source of danger. There's a guy named Asaph who is writing a book. Actually, his psalm is about envy. He's envying the, the, the put-together ungodly, and he describes them in a fascinating way. They, he's talking, he says they're the leaders, they're influencers, they seem to have it all, they have money, they have prestige. And here's what he says in Psalm 73 in an interesting passage in verse 4 through 6. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Their necklace is simply the thing that you most notice about them. It's their adornment. It's what stands out when you see them, this big necklace. Now, now they don't know that's what's radiating from them, but, 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 but Asaph says, because they don't have any struggles, because they, 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 they seem like they're coming from total strength, the result is they are proud people. The danger of our strengths is they are where invariably we put our pride. We don't find our security in our areas of weakness. We're very conscious of them, and we're very happy to not be around people that remind us of them. But our strengths? Now, you may say, I, I don't have any strengths. You do. And honestly, we beat ourselves up out of pride when we don't feel we're coming across as strong. In the same way, we exalt ourselves with pride when we feel we are on the greater, side, greater than side of things. But Paul is reminding us, be careful. Don't find your security in your strengths because, again, 1 Corinthians 4 who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? The second thing it reminds us is that failure is one of God's primary means of spiritual growth. That if it really is a life of faith and there really is no place for pride in it, then failure will be one of God's primary means of spiritual growth. In the great little book, Principles of Spiritual Growth, that is actually the quote on page four or five. Failure is one of God's primary means of spiritual growth. If you're feeling failure, you, you need to read that book. You really do. You will find that you are in a beautiful moment in your journey with God. God has some wonderful truths he wants to share with you right now. One of those is this, that failure is, why God, is where God enables us to see the folly of things we're trusting in that cannot do for us what only he can do. Paul describes it this way when he talks about boasting in his own life. He's writing the Corinthians who are boasting about being great teachers and leaders, and he's combating. Here's what he says in verse 17 and 18, 2 Corinthians. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting the way the world does, I too will boast. If I must boast, he jumps down to the end. If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That's an astonishing statement. He says, I'm not going to boast. Yeah, the things that God has enabled me to be strong in. Yeah, I, I, I have some leadership skills. Yeah, I, I, I have some writing skills. I, I have a good mind. But that's not where I'm boasting. I boast in my weaknesses. 
I don't know about you, that's not where I'm boasting. That's not where I'm trying to find my glory apart from Christ. That he says, I realize through weakness, through failure, through loss, through adversity, through stressing, stressful, stretching times, that I learn there. That is where I, 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 I am freed from depending on those things and finding out things about Christ, his love for me, that he's for me, that it doesn't matter that I'm accepted in him. My identity more and more becomes Christ when I am finding less and less my identity in other things. There's a statement that's been passed around in Christian circles for years. It's this statement, God deserves our best. I think it's a destructive statement. At least it is for me. Because I find that God often asks for my worst. I think that God often asks us to say, are you willing to bring people into your world and your home and into your life when you feel things are really messy? When things are not ordered? When you don't look your best? I think all of us want to honor God from abundance. We want to serve God from strength. We want to live for God when healthy and rested and when we have our ducks in order. But when we feel weak and stressed and overwhelmed and inadequate, we lament not being put together and strong. But God says often those are the necessary processes to wean us from the other things that we're trusting in, that we're evaluating me at the meetings, evaluating myself on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, a basis that is utterly godless, utterly godless. And the Lord is willing, unwilling, to abandon us to our trust in those things. There's a writing that was written in the 16th century. I came across it a while back. It's written by a monk named John Landsberg, it's out of print, long out of print, but you can get PDF copies. And this is an excerpt. It's a, it's a writing that actually he wrote as a letter from Jesus Christ being written to him. And he speaks to people that are feeling disappointment, that are feeling failure, that are feeling life has, has, has passed me by. And I think his words are, are powerful. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. This is Jesus speaking, at least from his perspective. I know those moods when you sit there utterly alone, pining, eaten up with unhappiness in a pure state of grief. You don't move towards me, but desperately imagine that everything you have ever done has been utterly lost and forgotten. This near despair and self-pity are actually a form of pride. What you felt was a state of absolute security from which you've fallen was really trusting too much in your own strength and ability. What really ails you is that things simply haven't happened as you expected and wanted. In fact, I don't want you to rely on your own strength and abilities and plans, but to distrust them and to distrust yourself and trust me and no one and nothing else. As long as you rely entirely on yourself, you are bound to come to grief you will still have a most important lesson to learn. Your own strength will no more help you to stand upright than propping yourself on a broken reed. You must not despair of me. You may hope and trust in me absolutely. My mercy is infinite. 
He says this near despair and self-pity are actually a form of pride. What really ails you, he says, is that things simply haven't happened as you expected and wanted. Maybe you're here, and right now God is allowing a season in your life where you say, failure. Uh, things are not going as they should be, as I want them to be, as life isn't playing out. I think what John Langsbury would say is you are exactly where the Lord wants you to be. This is a time to die to pride. It is a time to embrace the glory and the beauty of Christ being for you as perhaps you never have before, which leads us to the last thing. We need to be finding my, our acceptance in Jesus as the antidote to having to get it right to be somebody. Soren Kierkegaard in his book Sickness Unto Death says this, it is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. God may be trying to free you from your dependence on something else. You're boasting in something else. Maybe he is doing that by loss. Maybe he is doing that by things really not working out as you expect them to be. And as you drew up the script, this, this isn't how you saw it going. But God is not wasting circumstances. God is still writing the story. And this chapter may be really dark and really long and really hard, but it is a part of the book of the story of his life for you. Don't waste the time. Don't waste the crisis. Don't waste the hardship. Don't waste this chapter as a time to have Christ build into your life and make himself known to you. And it may be that for some of you, it's just the waiting game. The long waiting, and it seems interminable, and yeah, I could handle it for a while, but, but it's the waiting that's killing me. There are chapters, and there are hard chapters. Lewis Smead's theologian and author said it this way, Waiting is our destiny as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. We wait, and God in those times reminds us that we are not able to run our lives. We are not able, and maybe your sense of, of inadequacy or inability to move this forward in your family, in your life, in your job, in, in your health, whatever it is, it's God's very purpose to say, you know, you're not defined by those things. You're not defined by your relationship. You're not defined by your family. You're not defined by your, your job. You're not defined by anything other than the fact that you stand in Christ. You are the beloved of God. The one who says, he who, uh, he who did not spare his own son, will he not with him freely give us everything? So our boast is to be in Christ, Christ alone, faith alone, dependence alone. Paul says there is no place for boasting then. It's all Christ. It's all Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you look at our lives and our hearts, and we want to be honest before you and say, we certainly see the seed of this sin in our hearts. Even in the question we've been asked to answer this week, every day, what is it that we're putting our trust in um, in place of you? 
Lord, thank you for questions that you use in the Common Life book and other places to speak into our lives, to reveal our hearts, that you never show us our heart except to show us more of yours. Lord, apply whatever truths you want and need to apply in people's heart this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we close our time together, our worship team is going to lead us in a song I think is beautifully relevant to what we've studied together. Let's stand together.